Luke 6, we have what many scholars call the Sermon on the Plain. This sermon is teachings from Jesus that define his kingdom. In it, Jesus reestablishes what his kingdom looks like and how the people who follow him behave. Some of you will recognize this. He says in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. These statements would have been incredibly upsetting to the religious leaders who wanted Jesus to say something more like, blessed are those who follow all the rules, for you have earned your place with God. Or, blessed are those who hate sinners, especially tax collectors and prostitutes, through your hatred you have proved your love. Or, blessed are those who are oppressed by the Romans, for you will someday oppress them. These are the things and ideas that the religious leaders at the time saw as holy and religiously important. But in just a couple of sentences, Jesus reframes what he deems holiness looks like. He shows us his values and promises. He makes clear what his ministry while on earth will look like and gives us a vision for his kingdom, a vision for what our lives look like and what the world is like when he is Lord. We learned that in the third chapter of Genesis, this world is not as God intended it to be. Everything is so unbelievably broken. Truth is so distorted. And we cannot see clearly what God intended for our relationship with him. To fix that, he had to send his son. He had to become a human to help us see things differently so that we would know that things could be different. Jesus came to us in such an intimate way. Jesus was not just 100% God. He was also fully human, joining us here on earth to touch us, to walk with us. As a primary grade teacher, I have learned over the years that it is so important to get right into my kids' personal space in order to teach them essential lessons, like how to hold your pencil, or how to help them count blocks and learn math basics and much, much more. And I love that about Jesus. He became human in order to experience life right next to us, teaching us his ways. He didn't do this at arm's length. He came close, he comes close, getting to know each of us personally and intimately. That's who Jesus is, and that's what he did. He came to show us. He came to touch us. He came to walk with us and invited us to walk with him. And in the process, he said, I'm not just here to teach you. I'm here because I'm bringing you back to what I intended. There's something so beautiful and satisfying about this. I want to be a part of this restoration. I want to be a part of bringing heaven to earth. I want to be the one God came to restore. But what if I look more like the people who are doing the oppression than the people who were oppressed? What if I look more like the distorters than the victims of the distortion? What if I am working against the kingdom he wants to build? I very quickly and self-righteously think of myself as the person in the crowd or as a disciple when I read this text. 
When I listen to Jesus' teaching, I never see myself in the role of the Pharisees or the teachers of the law. That's just not naturally who I think I am. About eight years ago, near the end of October, a friend of ours who works for an airline posted on Facebook that he had a family pass to fly anywhere in the United States. He was offering it for free with two conditions. The family that bought it had to fly far away, not to Orange County or San Diego, and they had to fly by December 31st. Well, it took us about three seconds to reply yes, and we were the lucky family who secured the pass. It was winter, and because part of the stipulation was that we had to fly far, we decided that we would go to Florida, right, to avoid the snow and the sleet and all of the other things that happened during the East Coast winters. We had just explore, started exploring national parks as a family and felt like going to see the Everglades with a free airline ticket was a huge win. So we went. We packed our hiking shoes, our national parks annual pass, and our swimsuits. And after a few days of exploring in the Everglades, we decided to kick back at the beach and swim for the first time ever in the Atlantic Ocean. Now, this is a big deal for this California girl. It's the Atlantic Ocean. It's so cool to see the other coast. But it is so wrong that the sun sets over land. That is just not natural. Anyway, we found a stretch of beach that we had all to ourselves and we set up camp. It wasn't long after our kids ran into the ocean that the lifeguard from up the beach came by and told us that it wasn't safe to swim where we were swimming. We couldn't tell from where we were sitting, but a little ways out, the ocean floor drops significantly. And this drop forms currents and water conditions that are unsafe, especially for kids. We thanked the lifeguard profusely and immediately moved from where we were. It would have been reckless for us to continue playing in the water where we were sitting, especially after that warning. In Luke 6, lifeguard Jesus alerts us to some dangers that from where we are sitting, we aren't able to see. He says this, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed, for you will go hungry. And woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. I want to be in the blessed are those category, and I do not even want to consider myself as someone who Jesus was warning. I don't want to think that even for a moment, I might be the villain in the story. I don't think I would intentionally be the villain. I do think that I might, over time, fall into believing some of the lies of this world. I don't think that I would, on purpose, actively work against the kingdom of God. But imagine if on that Florida beach there were other people who looked at us and said, you really don't have to worry that much. The lifeguards here overreact. Or what if another family came and enjoyed the beach on the same spot where we were sitting and nothing happened to them, so we decided to move back? Or what if someone convinced us that we were strong enough swimmers to endure the current and that warning wasn't really for people like us? I mean, people do things against warnings all the time and they're fine. I don't actively think I would work against the kingdom of God, 
but I do think it's very likely that I might toy with the shiny and glamorous and intriguing things of this world that are not from God and don't look like him. I don't think that I would glorify injustice or support oppression or keep others in a disadvantage, but I might pursue my own interest at the expense of others and convince myself that it's just what it means to be an American. That tendency towards sin, the inclination to pursue things that are not of the kingdom of God, that's deep inside of me. And ignoring that reality only gives it power. I'm gonna go out on a limb and guess you have similar inclinations. I think Luke includes verses 24 to 26 to help us make sure we stay clear of slowly and unintentionally becoming trapped in the empty promises of this world. The promise of comfort, wealth, status, power, the promise of ease and happiness. Jesus is telling us, be careful of where you are swimming at the beach. You might not be able to see the dangers from where you are sitting. And I wanna take that seriously. When Jesus says, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort, my natural instinct is to say, I'm not rich. That doesn't apply to me. But this morning, I wanna consider how this might apply to me. And I'm inviting you to consider that it might apply to you too. We are considering this not to hang our heads in shame or stoke burning coals of anger, but so we can find a different place on the beach, a place where we are safe. So let's go through this verse together with the intention of using Jesus' words as a safeguard for those of us who live in one of the richest areas, in one of the richest states, in the richest nation in the world. Let's start with the woe. I've always heard this as, whoa, you better watch it. You are being very bad. But that's not the tone of the original text. When Jesus says, whoa, he is saying, I am saying this with great regret or compassion. I'm not angry. I'm not threatening you. Luke includes these verses while Matthew, who wrote a similar account, does not. I read a beautiful commentary on this passage that referred to Luke, the doctor, as a physician of the soul. When you go to the doctor, they tell you what you should be doing to be healthy, and also what you need to stop doing to be healthy. And this makes sense to me. Here we have Luke, the doctor, retelling this encounter with Jesus in a way that shows us what healthy looks like and what it doesn't look like not in a way that is condemning or belittling, but in an honest-to-goodness, genuine warning against, some, against something that can cause us deep spiritual harm. The Bible makes it clear that money and wealth is not inherently bad, and you should not feel shameful simply because you have money. The Bible does make it clear that money can get in our way of our relationship with God and with others. Jesus' warning here is not against shrewd management of money or intentionally planning for the future or anything that has to go with godly money, estate, or wealth management. Abraham, Job, David, Joseph were all quite wealthy. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man who gave his tomb to Jesus. It's not the wealth that's the problem. 
The problem is that we live in a culture that tells us money will meet our needs. That wealth will bring happiness and security. And when we start to rely on money for security and peace of mind, and we stop, or maybe we never started, looking to God for those things, we end up in dangerous territory. It's not being rich. It's not being rich towards God. That's the problem. Jesus ends this warning by saying, you have already received your comfort. You have already gotten all you can get, and it is a cheap facsimile of what I can give. This warning could be fair, paraphrased like this. If you use your wealth, abundance, things, money, possession as a way to feel powerful, satisfied, or fulfilled, then that's it. That's all you get. I don't know if you do this, but I, for one, make sure that on Thanksgiving Day, I do not eat until Thanksgiving dinner. I do not want to get filled up on anything else. I know the good stuff is coming, and I want it all. Wealth and riches can limit our appetite for what we truly need, and they blind us to what God wants to give us. They can prevent us from fully engaging in His kingdom work. Genesis 1 through 3 are deeply profound passages in the Bible that I believe are critical to every aspect of our faith. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see the world as God intended it to be, a garden with rivers that flow, a land of onyx, gold, and sweet-smelling resin, trees that had grown to, I can only imagine, redwood-like heights. This garden is full of fruits and good things to eat. Can you even imagine what kind of fruit Adam and Eve ate that we no longer have because of the devastation of sin? Can you imagine the plants that existed in this perfect place? I mean, in my mind, I see Yosemite Valley whenever I picture the Garden of Eden, something magnificent and unmatched. And in this place, there were a myriad of ways for Adam and Eve to live and move and to have their needs met to interact with each other and the world around them, there were more things they could do than things they were restricted from doing. In fact, they were restricted from eating from only two trees. BibleReference.com is a great online tool you can use to study the Bible. And the commentators explain Genesis 2 in this way. God is not placing man inside a tiny fence of rules. He is locking evil inside of a very small box. If we listen to Jesus' teachings and hear a bunch of rules and we get defensive, we are missing the point. God is doing the same thing here in Luke 6 that he did in Genesis 2. He is locking evil inside a small box and inviting us into the freedom of his kingdom. It's not the money. It's the relationship we have with it. I think it's interesting that Jesus follows up this compassionate warning by saying, you have already received your comfort. The Greek word for comfort Jesus uses here is derived from the same word he used to describe the Holy Spirit, our comforter. We can choose money or the Holy Spirit to bring us comfort. By actively pursuing the Holy Spirit, we are actively running away from the comfort that money can bring. We are choosing the eternal over the temporal. We are choosing the spiritual over the carnal. 
And the opposite is true as well. By not listening to Jesus' warning, we limit the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God said, eat from anything except this tree. The lifeguard said, sit anywhere except in this small area. So what do we do if we want to change our relationship with money? How can we go about that? Well, here are some ideas. What if you prayed for the next seven days, every day, asking God to show you what he wants you to do with your money? Maybe it's about a specific purchase that you want to make, or maybe it's a more general prayer about your finances. What if you prayed for the next seven days, every day, asking God if there are changes that he wants you to make? Pull in others to pray with you, maybe a significant other, for example, or your family. What if you prayed every day for the next seven days, asking what ministry you can support? Or are there things that you feel the Holy Spirit is asking you to support financially and you just haven't taken the steps to do it? What if you did that today? Maybe your next step in having a holy relationship with money is reaching out to someone who can help you manage your finances. Trust me when I say there is no shame in saying I need some help. Ignoring money is not a holy approach to wealth. One very tangible way of changing your relationship with money is to spend time with people who have less than you do. That might sound strange or forced at first glance, but I actually mean it when I say spend time with those in your community who have very little. Being with people who live with far less than we do, getting to know them and really seeing their lives it begins to make our relationship with money more holy because it's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to recalibrate our thinking about money. It allows the Holy Spirit to show us need, to show us our place in meeting those needs. It gives the Holy Spirit a chance to show us where, just maybe, we've been swimming in the dangerous part of the beach and then he can show us where we should be swimming instead. When Jesus says, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort, he's saying, be careful. It is not hard to choose money over the Holy Spirit, and it's not hard to choose riches and wealth over his kingdom. And when you make that choice, you are choosing to not have him. You are choosing things that will not last. I don't think any of us would choose to be in the crowd that the woes were directed to. I'd like to think that we all want the same thing, to be a part of building the kingdom of God. But praise be to God who gives us loving warnings, who tells us when we are swimming in dangerous waters, Praise be to him who protects us from the things that we cannot see from where we are sitting. May you approach this week with the power and comfort of the Holy Spirit, knowing that through that same Spirit, God has empowered you to listen, observe, evaluate, and respond to the compassionate warning he's given us, not to shame us, but to protect us, not to exclude us, 
but to invite us in. May it be in this power and love that you pursue the abundant wealth of the kingdom of God so that you fully receive the riches of being his child. Wait, wait, before you go, three things. First, please consider becoming one of Cornerstone Fellowship's financial partners. Your donations will ensure that you'll be able to continue enjoying helpful, hopefully life-changing messages like the one you just watched. And number two, please share the link to this message with anyone who you know needs it or will be blessed by it or post the link to your own personal social platforms. And finally, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you'll be alerted whenever we post more content. Thanks for watching.